All right, as Aaron said, uh, my name's Daniel. I am one of the elders and pastors here at Aletheia Church. And I am going to pick up from a message that I uh, did part one of a few weeks ago. And so this week you are going to get part two from Psalm 145. When I preached a few weeks ago, I covered things like God being all-knowing, God being all-powerful, God being all-present, God being eternal, God being infinite, God being self-sufficient, needing absolutely nothing, and God being uh, self-existent, being the great uncaused cause. In theological circle, these attributes of God we call incommunicable, all right? So if you don't know that word now, you've learned something new. You can at least take one thing from today that you have learned a new word, the incommunicable attributes of God. And what we mean when we use this word is that these are attributes of God that we actually don't share with God in any way, shape, or form. We are not self-existent. We are not self-sufficient. We are not all-knowing, all-powerful, though we may try. Though we like to pretend sometimes, we want to assume those roles, we actually do not get to share these attributes with God in any way, shape, or form. However, there's another set of attributes uh, that we do share with God. And these attributes we call the communicable attributes of God. These are things like holiness, uh, grace, love, mercy, faithfulness, justice, on and on we could go. And so there are a lot of these communicable attributes. Today, in the limited time that I have, we are going to cover five. I will not be able to cover all five e anywhere near the depth uh, that they deserve to be covered, but that is where we are going today as we try to make our way through Psalm 145. And so we're going to jump into this, and then we're going to pick up Psalm 145 at the end as we talk about the communicable attributes of God. And so the very first attribute we're going to begin with this morning is the fact that the scriptures declare, God himself declares that he is holy. When I use this word, and when we use this word in the Bible, the most simple definition that we can give of this word is something or someone that is set apart. So when we say that God is holy, we are referring to the unparalleled majesty of, God, um, of God's incomparable being and his blameless, faultless unblemished moral purity. We are saying that God is separate and distinct in his moral character from all of the moral creatures that he has created. His purity is of such radiance that the human eye cannot look upon it. When we consider the holiness of God, it should present something of a dilemma in our hearts and minds. In one instance, we should find ourselves drawn to God because we are just utterly amazed at a being who could be so pure, so holy, so separate, and so distinct that sin is not a part of his being in any way, shape, or form. But yet in the same way that we should be drawn to God when we consider his holiness, there should also be this, this equal reaction that we feel, this tugging in our soul and in our spirit, that as we look to him as inherently flawed creatures, we also cower in the all-revealing light of his majestic glory. And uh, 
I think these, these feelings that should take place in us if we're truly considering the holiness of God is, is best seen in an illustration we're given in Scripture of an actual account that happened to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet who was a good man, who was a holy man, who, who was a righteous man, who, who was God's man and was doing what God had asked him to do at, at one point in time in the year of King Uzziah, he is given an opportunity to simply see into the heavens, to see just the backside of the train of God's robe. And he records this experience for us in Scripture. And he says, in the, care that, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This was Isaiah's reaction to seeing the holiness of God. Let me say this, neither the speaker this morning nor the hearers of my words are qualified to truly appreciate the holiness of God. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best, only infinitely bettered. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. God is the absolute essence, uh, the absolute essence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect in righteousness, spotlessly pure, and incomprehensibly holy. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, all of his attributes are holy. God is separate and distinct from us in ways that we cannot even imagine. But in his holiness, he calls us, the children of God, to also be holy. Scripture says in 1 Peter 1, 15-17, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
church. Can you say in this morning, can you say in this past week, can you say that you are striving to be holy? Are you striving to be separate and distinct? Are you striving to live as God calls you to live, as a holy people, as a royal priesthood, as light to a dark and dying world? Our God is holy, and he calls us to be holy, to live lives that are set apart and do not look like the world. Because God is holy, he is also just. I want to begin by making a bold, clear declaration about God being just this morning. God always does what is right. Therefore, he is just in all his decisions. I want you to understand that in English, there are two words you will read in the Bible very often, justice and righteousness. And though we have these two words, it's kind of hard to distinguish them one from the other, and we use them many times interchangeably. I want you to understand that when you read this in English, that there's only one root word from which these two English words come. So therefore, when you read justice and righteousness, it's really coming from the exact same place in the Hebrew. So these two things cannot be separated in any way, shape, or form. And so when we speak of God being righteous, we are generally speaking about his character. And when we speak about justice and God being just, we are generally speaking about God making right or whole someone who has been wronged. And though there are a lot of conversations about justice going on in the world today, conversations that we need to have as the people of God with one another and with the world around us, there is a particular lens about the justice of God that I want us to look through this morning. And this lens that we're going to look through specifically and directly pertains to God's moral standard for humanity. You need to understand that God's standard is God's law as it's revealed to us in Scripture. And where does God's law find its footing? In no place other than God himself. God's law is an expression of the nature and of the character of God. Therefore, justice is God's righteously revealed standard applied to the specific facts of given circumstances. And so here are the circumstances for us according to Scripture. In James 2.10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has, been, has become accountable for all of it. In this, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is telling us, as it tells us in many other places in Scripture, that it only takes one sin for us to be separated from God. It only takes one sin to throw the whole cosmos into chaos. I mean, if you're familiar with the biblical story at all, I mean, we, we get this idyllic 
Edenic beginning, right? That God, this, this self-existent, the great uncaused cause, he speaks the entire cosmos into existence. He, he sets it into motion and he declares it good and then he and he creates humanity and he declares that now it is very good it's now complete because there are image bearers upon the face of the earth and in this edenic paradise god had made it pretty simple for them but but in in one act of pride in one act of rebellion we see that everything changes immediately instantly and not for the better. We see that Adam and Eve in this act of rebellion, before God even shows up, they go and they run and they hide in the bushes full of fear and guilt and shame. Because before this act of rebellion, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. They walked face to face with God they spoke face to face with God the way we have spoken to one another in church this morning. But in one act of rebellion, simply eating a piece of fruit they were told not to, God places a curse on the entire world. And not just on them. And not just on the world as it was presently but on the world that was to come, on the population that's come. We bear the sin of Adam. And we are told that the consequence for that would be pain and suffering and that toil would be really, really hard. And so one sin, when we ask ourselves, how is it? Like, why is it that one sin could create all this chaos and calamity that we see in the world today? Why would God make that just judgment upon the creation, upon the creatures, among his image bearers that he loves so much? And it's because of how great one sin offends his holiness. And, and I understand this is a concept that many people struggle with. And this is something you may be really struggling with, that, that God's judgment seeming just in this declaration upon humanity or the situation that we find ourselves in or how you see justice being carried out in the world today. Many people are repulsed by a God who would not only punish wrongdoing, but eternally punish wrongdoing. I have often used an, an illustration that people have told me that they have found helpful, and so I'll, I'll, I'll use it here again if you, in case you are struggling with this, or even maybe you're trying to explain this concept to someone of how offensive sin is to a true, a truly holy God who is separate and distinct and, and perfectly pure. Um, yesterday, we, we had an elders meeting, which we normally have, try, try to do about once a month, and it's always me and Kevin and Stephen and Theo. 
And uh, though this did not happen, let's just imagine for a moment that it did. Let's just imagine for a moment uh, that Kevin and I got really uh, heated and passionate about a certain topic, and, uh, and I just finally had my fill of it, and I just couldn't take it anymore, and I just decided to jump off of one couch on the other, and I just popped Kevin right in the nose. <laughs> now, what do you imagine might happen if I did that? Well, me, what I imagine is, you know, I'm, Kevin's a scrappy little fella, so, you know, I think he would come back, uh, you know, and he would come at me hard, and, and we, would, we would roll around the floor for a minute and tussle around, and then Stephen and Theo would pull us apart from one another, right? And the consequences of that is, you know, I, w- I would go under church discipline, right, and I'd probably lose my spot as an elder, and that, 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 that'd probably be about it, right? Well, let's just imagine in the same way, today um, I'm walking, you know, downtown, um, you know, and there's a police officer coming down the sidewalk, and he's walking toward me, we're walking toward one another, and I just reach out and just pop him right in the nose. What's going to happen? I'm going to jail, right? Like, no ifs, ends, or buts, nobody's got any problem with me ending up in jail for striking a police officer right in the nose. Now, let's imagine here in the same scenario, I'm a, I have a chance to visit a country in the Middle East, and somehow I got introduction to the Ayatollah, right? To the, to the biggest Muslim leader in the world. And upon greeting him, instead of reaching out my hand to shake his hand, I pop him right in the nose. What's going to happen? It's over, right? Going to meet Jesus, right? Quick ticket. Now, In all three of those scenarios, the exact same action happened, right? All three got a punch in the nose. But yet the consequences for each of those scenarios is completely and totally different. Why? Because of of who the, the offense was committed against. And in the same way, when we try to imagine kind of this infinite, this one sin against an infinitely holy God, That is a way in which I have found it helpful to try and think about how God is justified in eternally punishing wrongdoing. It's not because God is not merciful or gracious or love us, but it's because he is so holy that he has no other choice for him to be just than to actually Meet out that punishment for those who have offended his holiness and have sinned against him and have refused to accept his mercy. So if the incomprehensibly holy God declares that one sin is enough to send a person to hell, then God is just in saying and doing so because that is how unrighteous and evil one sin is to a holy God. God has equally and impartially applied this condition upon all people, for God is not a respecter of persons. Galatians 3, 10 through 13 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. 
For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What the scripture here is is saying to us is that we have all broken God's law. James tells us once you break God's law, once you are accountable for all of it. It's as if you have broken every commandment. We have all been declared guilty. And because God is just, he could not allow sin to go unpunished. If we were to be reconciled to God, if God was to uphold his righteous standard, then payment had to be made. And that payment cost God dearly when he sent his one and only son to die for the sins of the world. He sent the spotless lamb of God who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, that the story doesn't stop with God just being holy. The story doesn't stop with God just being just. Because when we consider the attributes of God, we have to consider all the attributes of God because they are all held in unity at all times. God is not struggling up in heaven going, ooh, what do I dispense today? Do, do, I, do I give mercy or do I give justice? Am, am I going to be gracious Or am I going to be just and mete out punishment? God does not struggle in any way, shape, or form with that. Because for for us, or for God himself, who he is in his nature, in his character, in his being, it is always consistent, right? We talked about this last time. God is immutable. God does not change. God has the ability to actually act in a way that he is always consistent with his character. He always does what is good, what is just, what is right, what is faithful, what is merciful, what is gracious at all times and in all ways towards all people. For these are all equally present with God. And it should amaze us that this God, whose holiness is so offended by our sin, would make his only son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. I mean, have you ever like greatly offended someone? I mean, like really offended someone? Have you ever been really offended? by someone. How easy was that for you to get over? I mean, did you just go, "Eh, I'll just get over it, right? I mean, right now, some of you are still holding on to that grudge from someone having offended you, and you will not let it go. Someone offended you, and you are still holding it against them, and you refuse to let it go. No matter what that person did, you would, you, you will not let it go. God's holiness, infinitely more offended than that, chose to be merciful uh, toward us. By not taking something that had no value, but taking that which had supreme value, his, his own son, and offering him so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus was willing to take our sin upon himself so that you and I could be declared totally holy 
and blameless and righteous in God's eyes. But see that these facts don't over don't overwhelm us unless we first understand the holiness and the justice of God. And that's why we can't be afraid to step into that holiness and try to discover that holiness and find ourselves in fear of that holiness. Because it should be an awe-inspiring, awful thing to consider being face-to-face with the holy God. And so that turns us to the third attribute that we'll cover today, which is the mercy of God. As I expressed in the last message and even in this one, uh, I've spent the last five or six weeks um, in A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. Cannot recommend that book enough to any of you. And I, I will read this direct quote from Tozer about mercy. He says, When through the blood of the everlasting covenant... We children of the shadows reach at last our home in the light. We shall have a thousand strings to our harps, but the sweetest may well be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly the mercy of God. For what right will we have to be there? Did we not by our sins take part in that unholy rebellion which rashly sought to dethrone the glorious king of creation? And did we not in times past walk according to the course of this world, according to the evil prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience? And did we not all at once live in the lusts of our flesh? And were we not by nature the children of wrath, even as others? But we who were one time enemies and alienated in our minds through wicked works shall then see God face to face. And his name shall be on our foreheads. We who earned banishment shall enjoy communion. We who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven. Mercy is an attribute of God that disposes God to be actively compassionate toward us. If you remember from the last time that I spoke that there's this scene in the New Testament where Jesus sees all these people who have been following him for days and without food, and it says Jesus looks upon them and he has compassion on them. And the Greek word there literally is the turning of the guts. That's actually what the word compassion means in Greek, the turning of the guts. Jesus, the God-man, looks upon people and he is so moved in his inner being that his guts turn on the inside because he has compassion on those who are seeking after him and following him. And the entire Bible is not only full, but overflowing with the mercy of God. And please, for the love of God, don't ever let anyone tell you that justice and judgment characterize the God of the Old Testament while mercy and grace belong to Jesus in the New Testament. Because the facts are that mercy is spoken of more than four times as much in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. 
The mercy of God is seen wherever the sins of the people of God are present. And though their sins are often met with justice and judgment as the right consequence for their sin, they are also soothed by the ointment of God's mercy. God is merciful as well as he is just. He has always dealt in mercy with mankind and will always deal in justice when his mercy is despised. As judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, so mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. I define mercy this way. This is not original to me. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. What we deserve is death and hell. And God in his mercy does not deliver that to us who have faith in Jesus Christ. But I also find it helpful to have this second definition of grace right beside it. Because grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve. See, mercy is God saying, you deserve this, but I'm not going to give it to you. Grace is God taking something that we don't deserve and giving it to us anyway. I've always found this to be just an incredibly helpful distinction between these two terms. You see, in God, mercy and grace are one. But as they reach us, they are seen as two. Related, but not identical. As, God, as mercy is God's goodness confronting human sin and guilt, so grace is his goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. It is by grace that God credits merit where none had previously existed and declares no debt to be where one had been before. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 10. One of the first sections of Scripture that I have my four children memorize, actually, actually the first book that I have my four kids memorize is the book of Ephesians. And so up to this point, they've got, they've got Ephesians down, they've got James down, they've got the, the two older ones have the Gospel of Matthew memorized, and, uh, and we work through this on a, on a regular and weekly basis. Well, they work through this on a regular and weekly basis. But the reason I have them plant in their mind Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, because this is a truth that we all need to hold on to. And my prayer is that we would never lose sight of the awe and wonder of what's contained in these verses of what the Apostle Paul writes to us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Church, we can never exhaust the grace and mercy that exists in these eight verses. You, as the children of God, you have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing that God has to give. Not one of you is lacking in any spiritual blessing that God has to give. And he has freely given this to you. Not only has he freely given this to you, look, he chose you before the foundation of the world. If you remember last time from the, from the sermon, I talked about the time, you know, that God being eternal, right? And that we exist on this timeline, that at some point, the one who was self-existent, he created time. At that point, time began, and now time goes on, and time will continue to go on. But no matter how far time goes on, God is always outside of time. God is through time. God is in time. God experiences every moment of time at once. It is all present to him. So he knew every sin that you and I would ever commit in our lives from the time we first drew breath until the very last one that we took. And even knowing all of that before the foundation of the world, he chose you to bestow every spiritual blessing upon. He adopted you as a son or as a daughter of the king. All according to his own will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood. That is being bought. Jesus paid the price to redeem us, to buy us back from sin, to buy us back from slavery to sin so that we could now walk in the freedom that is offered through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been forgiven all of our trespasses, past, present, and future, simply because of His great grace. He has lavished this upon us in all wisdom and insight. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. You believe, you understand the will of God because God has revealed it to you. He has bestowed this grace upon you that you would believe. For there was a time that you didn't believe. And there are people in your life who don't believe. But yet the Lord your God one day came and he awakened your spirit to understand the mystery of his will and what it is that Christ has done 
for you upon the cross. Through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. And he has a plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And you are an incredible part of that plan by the sovereign will of God. And this is bestowed upon you by grace, by mercy, and in love. Look at what it says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So see, he, he has all this mercy. He has this love that which he loves us. And at one point we were dead in our trespasses, right? And this is something that we always need to remember when we are sharing the gospel with people who do not know Jesus. When you share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus, you are speaking to a dead person. That according to scripture, they are dead in their sins according to their trespasses. So you can't go just kind of nudge them along and think they are just going to get up off the ground and start walking. That it actually takes an act of God to raise them to life. Salvation is a supernatural act of God where he takes something that was dead and makes it alive. And that was true of all of us who at one time were not the children of God. But if you are not yet a child of God, that is true of you today, that you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. And what you need is for God to come and make you alive. In this mercy, in this grace, and in this love, not only has God saved us in this life, but the scriptures declare that he has already seated us with him in the heavenly places. How does he do that? It's because all moments are present for God at one time. And he's done this for us. And the way we will experience this is that he will show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness forever and ever. That's God's mercy and grace and love to us. It's say, I have chosen you and I have adopted you, even though you have rebelled against me. And what I want to do for you for all of eternity is to dispense my immeasurable riches upon you. And those riches will never end. They will never get old. You will never get bored in heaven. Though there's pictures of Angels on harps and floating on clouds. That is not what heaven will be like. Yes and amen. I'm really happy. That's not the case. But that's our God. Though he is holy, though he is just, he is also full of mercy and grace. And the scripture says that he is also full of love. He actually is love, the scriptures declare. 
And we'll conclude with, with this attribute, and I'll press home this point. Um, it, it's as true a statement as I've ever heard and as one that I've ever repeated. When you are interacting with other human beings, even when you're even thinking about your, yourself, I can guarantee this to be true about every human being you ever interact with, which means it's also true about you and me. Your greatest desire is to be fully known and fully loved. What you want more than anything else in the world, you want someone to know you with all your warts and all your pimples, with all your evil thoughts and evil deeds. You want someone to know you better than you know you and to fully love you at the same time. And this is what makes relationships really scary, right? This is what scares the mess out of us in relationship. Will this person actually know me if they truly love me? That's why there's all this posturing and stuff that we do on first dates, right? We go out on dates with people and, you know, that, that, that's like the absolute best, fakest version of like anybody you ever get, right? Because you're trying to impress and you're trying to do all these things. Where now, 19 plus years into marriage, like, all the way I presented myself, well, I did propose on date number one, so maybe I'm not the best example, um, which, yes, I did propose on the first date. But, um, and we got married five months later. You got to be quick with it, right? You got to be quick before they understand. You know, that's why you got to propose quick. So they don't know all the warts and pimples that are in there. Um, but we do all this posturing, right? And we do all these things. But we're like, will this person really love me if they really know everything about me? And that's the amazing thing about God, right? Like God fully knew it before you even took your first breath. And he fully knows every single thing about you. Even the things you don't yet know about yourself. And he fully loves you and he fully accepts you because of his great love for you. Not because you are cuter and more cuddly than anybody else. Not because you're more sweet or more precious. Not because you're smarter or better looking or taller or shorter or got more money. Any reason you could think of, none of those things, but simply that because before the foundation of the world, He chose to love you and adopt you as his own child. And so if you walk out of here with nothing else today, know this, that if you were a child of God, you are fully known and you are fully loved by God. The scriptures say in 1 John 4, 7 through 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his perfect and his love is perfected in us. Just in case you're wondering what that word propitiation means, it just means to put one into a favorable state. This is something that is second nature to humanity. They offer sacrifices to God or to their gods all over the world, wanting to make those gods favorable towards them. The Bible tells us that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus, you and I have put been put into a state of being perpetually favorable in the eyes of God. No matter how bad we act, no matter some of the things we say or do, God still fully knows us and God still fully loves us. And so maybe by now you're asking at the very end of this whole message, what did this have to do with Psalm 145? Like, we we haven't even gotten there yet. We're finally there. And we're going to get there in our time of of meditation and prayer uh, this morning. Uh, Something you're now familiar with of how we do things a little different here because we, we want you to just take some time and to meditate and to praise God and to bless his holy name for what it is He has done for us.